I also made the case for owning Bitcoin, the quintessence of scarcity premium. Scarcity premium. It's literally the only large tradable asset in the world that has a known fixed maximum supply by its design. The total quantity of Bitcoins cannot exceed 21 million. Bitcoin is the hardest money that has ever been invented. If you don't have my private key, you cannot spend my Bitcoin, period. And this is the power of Bitcoin. It's the first time we figured out how to create true property that you can take possession of with full custodial rights. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to another episode of Talking to Bits, where we walk you through Bitcoin bit by bit so we can provide you with the information you need to succeed and persist. Back with episode 64 and got a long overdue episode here. I know anybody that's been listening to the show from the beginning, we've been talking about custody and we all know not your keys, not your cheese. We all get that stuff. But I've never actually taken the time to dive in and talk about not only custody as a whole, but just different solutions and, and, and you know, different trade-offs that can happen when we decide to hold our own keys and, and, you know, and, and secure this legacerial wealth, if we want to use that. Uh, so I got my good friend here, Jerry, who, who, who we talked about this a little bit off, off the mic, and he was willing, more than willing and happy to come on the show and talk about this stuff with me. How you doing, brother? Thank you so much. I'm good, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, this is going to be great. Like I just said, man, I think I've done my listeners an injustice because they always hear me talk about keys and all that stuff and, uh, and cold storage, and I've never actually given them the 101 on that. So you're going to help me with that, good sir. Yeah, man. Cool, cool. But before we get into like the weeds of the stuff, I actually love to hear these stories and uh, uh, about you know people's Bitcoin story and their journey. And I think the longer you've been in Bitcoin, the more fascinating the story is. So if you don't mind, good sir, please tell me how you got introduced to Bitcoin and a little bit about your story. Yeah, I will. Um, I, I, you know, I think as most people experience, you have a few different touch points before you really start to sink in. Um, I had a super early touch point in like 2011, 2012, where um, somebody had randomly told me about it and I considered buying and then I never followed through with it because it was too complicated. Um, and then uh, it wasn't again until 2017. Um, I was at the time renting uh, with my wife and um, we were, were um, friends with uh, Brandon Quidham and his wife. Um, and they ended up subletting, uh, the extra room from us. Uh, that was the first time I got to know Brandon. Um, and we became fast friends and it was around that time that he started looking into, um, various aspects of Bitcoin and crypto. We went through the whole bull run. Um, but then I kind of, you know, life got in the way of things. I just kind of stuffed everything into Bitcoin and walked away and didn't really pay much attention to it. Um, in 2018, the startup that I was working for got acquired by Microsoft. Uh, found out my wife was pregnant with our first kid. Um, and 2019 was also kind of a whirlwind of work and travel. We ended up going to Europe and to New Zealand for a while. Um, so it wasn't then again until later on in 2020 uh, where I started to really pay more attention. Um, I recall having a conversation with Brandon and it was right around the time that it was starting to climb back up over 10K and heading up towards 15K. And I was like, this thing isn't going away, is it? And he <laughs> said, no, no. So um, that, was, that was where I really started to sink in my teeth a little bit more heavily, started listening to podcasts, got some great recos from him. Um, and uh, yeah, from, from there, 
I'd say up through the spring of 2021, it just became more and more clear that this is where I needed to be spending my, my time and energy. Um, and then uh, it was in the fall, I attended Bitblock Boom, uh, which was incredible. Uh, it was my first time attending that particular conference. And um, during that period, I got to meet some really excellent Bitcoiners uh, that work over at Unchain Capital and decided that that's where I was going to try and plant my flag and move away from Microsoft and continue my career working directly in Bitcoin. Yeah, no, well-traveled, obviously sounds like a long journey. Um, I'm, I'm always curious because I've, I've kind of got into the Bitcoin podcasters uh, now that you were saying that you got some recommendations from Brendan. Um, Brandon, I know Brendan and Brandon, right? There's always, <laughs> they, I used to work with a, a Brendan and he used to hate it. But anyways, um, so I'm used to like, you know, the I guess the podcasters of today. When you came in at that time and you got those recommendations, were they the same people? Were they like the Martys of the world? The, or or where, is it a diff, was it a different lineup? Yeah, for the most part, um, it was uh, rabbit hole recap. Um, he recommended uh, John Vallis to me early on. That was a, a very clear winner. Um, and to this day, I still consider him to have really great uh, uh, esoteric conversations and uh, very differentiated from anything else that's happening in the Bitcoin podcasting space. Um, Brandon also early on, uh, turned me on to Daniel Prince's podcast, Once Bitten. Uh, that is phenomenal as well. Um, and I think he recommended Preston Pish, if I'm not mistaken, Bitcoin Fundamentals on the TIP network. Um, so yeah, a a lot of the, the classics back then remain the, the same now. I think the hardest part with podcasts is that there's there's so many to choose from now that it's hard to keep up with them and you really have to pick and choose there's only so many hours in the day even when you're listening to them at one and a half x um (laughs) you you still need times to be able to to absorb it all so um yeah those are kind of uh, those remain kind of my primary go-to's that i make sure i listen to every week Imagine the uphill climb on the other end of that and trying to infiltrate the podcasting space. Uh, that That's the, the the struggle that I go through every single week. Yeah, but, I believe it. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, are you when it comes to that content consumption, and I know we're going to talk about custody at some point, y'all. Uh, um, are you more of like the, the, do you like the mix, like the financial macros beside of Bitcoin, or do you like more like the philosophy, the technical parts? What, what's the, the content you, you consume? Yeah, you know, I jump around. Um, I... I find it all pretty interesting. Um, one of the, the the main things that got me really paying more attention to Bitcoin was the the macro landscape, um, and already kind of being a bit of a a gold bug, uh, concerned about inflation, being mindful of that stuff. Um, so it's certainly of interest. I don't necessarily know if I understand it as well as I could, um, but then. Uh, I have a long history of being uh, technical enough to be dangerous to myself. I'm not a, I'm not a developer, um, but I understand a lot of the technical aspects um, better than most. Um, and I want to at least be aware of what's going on um, and trying my best to understand it. Um, so sometimes I find the technical stuff really good, um, which reminds me that Stefan Levera's podcast is another one that I failed to mention. 
Um, and he does a great job of really making sure that the technical aspects are, um, are distilled in a way where the average person can follow along. Yeah. Um, but um, to, to the point I was making earlier, I think that there's really, there is something that, uh, that cuts across all of these different areas, which is um, the foundational change of what it means to have truly provably scarce money and how that uh, alters our perception of reality and our way of uh, collaborating with other individuals and our way of communicating. Um, and I think that the, the podcast that John Vallis puts together, in particular, some of his deep dives with like Eric Kaysen, uh, who's incredible. Um, some of the conversations that, uh, Vallis has had with Tomer Strolite. Um, these are, you know, world-class thinkers, um, that are to this point underappreciated by the broader, uh, the broader space. And mostly just because people refuse to accept uh, some of the realities of what Bitcoin could represent, and as a result, don't want to really think through some of these um, these inflection points in the way in which this would change our our society at large. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And the entry point for different types of people and different types of backgrounds. Um, yeah, Bitcoin seems to do that. Um, I think I've said it on this podcast before, but uh, my first week at Unchained, uh, uh, Eric was uh, you know my manager, if you want to call it that, or the oh, person yeah, that I right. went to interview. Yeah. And uh, fascinating because it was his last week out and uh, we didn't really talk about work at all. We just, we, we, I was just preview, uh, maybe one of the rare previews to just be able to sit for uh, a huge uh, amounts of the day and just be able to hear Eric just like, you know, spit this like knowledge and this incredible wisdom. Yeah. And I'm just like, this is week one for me. I'm like blown away. <laughs> uh, but yeah, shout out to, to Eric. Eric is a great dude. I do think, yeah, uh, under no, you know, people are not noticing what Eric is doing, at least not the newer Bitcoiners. Um, and I think it's just because he's so based and he's so, you know, blunt with his delivery on the stuff that he says. And it may rub people off the wrong way, but I, I think it's nothing oh, yeah. but knowledge and truth. So yeah, a little fun fact there. All right. We're going to jump into the, uh, the custody overall. Um, I, just a TLDR, you don't really have to dive in. You don't have to go through companies in general. But before we dive in, can you just give like a, a higher overview of the state of Bitcoin custody uh, um, now as it stands? Yeah, um, I think the, the easiest way to break it down is that you have, you have two divergent paths. You have um, uh, custodial services that will handle the Bitcoin for you. Um, and that's really nothing more than an IOU. Um, it's no different from, uh, you know, an example being like a Robinhood account, a perfect example, because it was a custodian that you couldn't, for a long time, you couldn't even move your Bitcoin out of there. Um, and so people just treated it like just another speculative asset. Um, and then, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of contention around what you actually call the other side of that coin, which is a non-custodial or self-hosted wallet or, you know, the terms all make it sound like there's some uh, nefarious activity going on there, but really it's just um, people being able to take, uh, you know, take control of their own wealth and their own funds and being able to have control over that and to be in a position where no matter what happens externally, if you decide that you want to send a portion of what you hold to another address, you have the ability to do so without any restrictions. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's kind of what, you know, if you want to call uh, newbies or, or, or the people that come in, that's kind of the, the, what they tend to go to. It's not the custodial, actually. It's the, no, not the non-custodial. They go to the custodial options just because the on-ramp is easier and because yep. they feel that they have that power, but it's more of a facade. They don't really actually have that power. Yeah. And I think that part of it is um, people are uncomfortable with actually having that, that control, but, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, as they say. Um, and I, I think that a lot of people um, aren't necessarily technically savvy and they see the process of, uh, you know, managing private keys and securing them. And, uh, you know, most people don't even consider, they don't even have a safe in their house or they don't have a, a secure offsite location to be able to store things. And so um, there, there is a, there's a huge distance that they have to close. And for the longest time, there wasn't a need because, you know, everything was taken care of for you. You could just go to a bank and leave things there. And um, There's uh, a lot of challenges that are emerging out of that uh, paradigm that we've been in for the last century. Um, so I, I think that there is that apprehension. Um, and a lot of that is just a matter of education, uh, yeah. helping people to understand that uh, self-sovereignty and self-custody uh, doesn't need to be such a, a scary endeavor. Um, and, you know, everyone can start small. Um, maybe they they don't want to take immediate control of everything that they have. So, you know, they've been buying on a DCA site or through a custodial exchange and they want to, you know, test the waters by setting up a hot wallet and putting a hundred or $200 onto there. Um, and, you know, uh, giving them an opportunity to get exposure to what that process is like, how you actually move money between different addresses, um, how private keys function for signing transactions. Uh, because until you've moved off of a custodial exchange and actually have the, the Bitcoin in your own control, all of your, uh, your, your spends, your transactions, you're never interacting with private keys. So yeah. you could, in fact, buy Bitcoin on an exchange and then use their integrated wallet to go around and buy stuff in a quote unquote circular economy um, without ever actually practicing using private keys and how you interact with them um, across the Bitcoin protocol. So um, I think that giving people an opportunity to learn the ropes, get comfortable with it. And from there, being able to expand that process is really the way to go. And how much of that is just, um, I don't know if, if design is the right word here, um, but like you were just saying a, a bit ago, um, it sounds like these words sound like they're scary and they sound like they're nefarious. How much of that is up to the developers nowadays or, or the designers nowadays to kind of make this stuff easy to understand and not so scary sounding? Yeah, I think it's just an, a natural evolution of Bitcoin development. Yeah. Uh, Bitcoin is only 13 years old, um, which granted in terms of technology is a reasonably long amount of time. Yeah. Um, but uh, for, for a very long time, the, the user experience was pretty poor. I mean, that was part of the reason why I didn't really give it much of a second look back in 2011. Um, 
was because the methodology for uh, how you move around, uh, you know, having to track individual private keys for every single UTXO that you have is kind of nuts, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. Um, so there's, there's been incremental improvements along the way that allow for, um, that allow for that user experience to be more intuitive and less scary. Um, you've got great onboarding with um, a lot of the, the uh, wallet software, especially mobile wallets, are coming a long way in terms of how easy it is to get set up and get started, being able to receive funds and spend it out. Um, yeah. So I, I think that now, now that it is, um, now that the protocol is really maturing, all of that user experience is starting to take on more of a primary focus for people. And they're really trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we make things as straightforward for users as possible such that they aren't, uh, they aren't constantly hitting pain points along the way that, yeah. You know, it, it's it's intuitive at every step, and they can get from point A to point B. Um, I, I think that um, what will continue to remain a challenge is uh, the way in which addresses function. Uh, I think Lightning is you know doing a lot in terms of trying to figure out how to create a more uh, recognizable address for you to be able to use, almost in the same vein as an email address. Um, and I think that pushing in that direction more and more will start to have people be less apprehensive about having to enter in just this long, you know, BC1 QT4 right. into infinity. Yeah, yeah. No, an interesting, now that you bring up Lightning, um, an interesting dynamic there is like, you know, I have a Zeus wallet that's connected to my own node, but I still have bump into the liquidity problems, right? I still bump into like, oh, sure. hey, payment failed. This is yep. not working, right? And then I get an implementation like, let's say, a Moon Wallet or let's say like Cash App now that they have Lightning. And because they do all the voodoo in the background, right, they, they have this little pretty interface. Those transactions are going through every single time, probably 99% going up yep. time. Um, and of course, I love it going 99% of the time, but I hate the fact that now I have to, you know, to use Cash App, at least KYC myself and go through all this process or whatever. So Lightning's interesting um, because of those two dynamics. But then the second layer of that, no, you know, pun intended or no pun intended, I wasn't trying to do that. The second layer of that is I was talking to John Carvalho on the show uh, a few episodes ago. Sure. And, he's, and he's like, yeah, well, most people don't understand that there's not one Lightning Network. Like there is many flavors and many implementations of the Lightning Network. And then this is where I'm like, I'm interested, but the, mo the most of the people just turned off at this point. They're just like, all right, well, why do I yeah. want to use this? A lot of people aren't interested in understanding how everything works under the hood. Yeah, it's the it's, and it's in part it's that it's for that reason that people when they use Venmo they think well this is fast and somebody says I want to send them X amount and then it's there when in reality it's not there or if you swipe your card at a store the the merchant doesn't have the ability to withdraw that amount that day right there's yeah. a delay in terms of final settlement that uh in the case of visa well, with a credit card can be what is 30 60 90 days yeah um my boggle and so as a result there's a lot of people who have this false assumption that bitcoin isn't really improving upon the underlying technical the technical framework that underpins the existing financial network um 
And maybe that's a big impediment to people on recognizing the value proposition. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, that also explains then why people switch off pretty quickly because they're just, they're not interested in knowing that stuff. They just, all they care about is that it gets from point A to point B when they want it to. And um, until they're in a position where, for whatever reason, the government or the bank decides that they're not allowed to make transactions happen, they don't think that there's anything that could possibly go wrong. Right. And by then it's too late at that point. Yeah. It's one of those things. Well, we're gaining ground here because in that same two example, uh, Moon Wallet is a non-custodial wallet and does, is it not? Yeah, it is non-custodial wallet, does handle lightning and on-chain transactions pretty smoothly. I mean, I've had a few that fail here and there, but you know, for, for a wallet that I could just download and have set up in minutes, um, the usability of Moon Wallet is actually very impressive. Uh, Blue yeah. Wallet's another one. There's a few other ones there. Yeah, and I think uh, to to kind of break down further the the different types of um, you know ways in which you can interact with the Bitcoin protocol. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, you've got your custodial and non-custodial. Um, but in the non-custodial environment, you've got uh, additional layers there, right? You can have a, as I was describing, a hot wallet or a mobile wallet um, where you have a private key that you control, but the way in which you created that key and where you store the ability to interface with that key is all on an internet connected device. Mm. Um, and it's certainly you know, a step function improvement over a custodial service in that uh, you might have an attack surface against uh, outside nefarious actors um, but at least you're not going to be arbitrarily shut off from access because some custodial service decide you're no longer worthy of being able to interact with your own Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, the next layer would be um, a basic hardware device. Um, and uh, that would be, you know, for example, like a Trezor or a Ledger or a cold card. Um, and those provide you with the ability to generate or import a private key offline um, and to be able to sign transactions without necessarily having that directly connected to an internet connected device. Um, and then finally, there's, there's multi-sig. Um, there's other ways of kind of splitting up um, your, the access to your keys. Um, but multi-sig, just one flavor of that where you can set up a quorum of more than one key and only by joining them all together do you then see the combined uh, extended public addresses um, that are derived from the merging of all of those keys. Um, and that allows for you to have more assurance that even if one of your keys were to be compromised or stolen or somehow uh, taken from you that you wouldn't necessarily have a complete loss of your funds. Yeah, that, there's a lot of flavors there for, for uh, any type of user to use. Now, the software that powers uh, these hardware wallets, or the, first of all, before we go there, signing devices or hardware wallets? Yeah. Where you at, man? <laughs> I'm, I'm a little all over the place. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think that um, the... There's been some good discussion about this. Yeah. Uh, it's been ongoing for a while. It kind of comes in waves. Um, you know, people were talking about this years ago, then it kind of okay. fell off for a little while, then it came up again six months ago. It's coming up again now. Uh, ultimately, all devices 
are um, functioning as a signing mechanism, a way of being able to interface with your private keys. Okay. Um, and you know, some of them are also additionally storing those keys. Once you imp you uh, generate a private key on the device, or you import a private key into the device, it has a secure element or some other way of securing the the private key on that device. Um, and protecting it from, you know, if somebody were to grab it, maybe there's a pin that's a, a, a hardware uh, pin for that specific device, or there's other ways of being able to protect access to that uh, private key. But then there's also other devices that don't use a secure element to store the key on there. And you each time you open it up, you have to import or create a new key. Um, which is referred to as a, a stateless device, meaning that as soon as you unplug it, it forgets anything, has total amnesia. Um, so uh, the 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 overarching uh, the overarching theme between those is that it, ultimately the device is a way to for one of the analogies that I've been trying to think through um, is that it, it's like a pen and your private key, um, you know, you load it into the pen and then the ink that comes out of it allows for you to sign a transaction in such a way that the, the Bitcoin protocol acknowledges the only way that this ink could have gone onto this paper and this particular ink came from the private key that secures the Bitcoin that is attempting to be moved. Therefore, we can accept this transaction as valid and we'll allow for it to move forward. Um, and uh, I don't think that there's a, a very clear uh, term in place yet. And, you know, ironically enough, this is something that uh, we're talking through at work right now. Shout out to, to Sahil. Um, to Sahil. You know, he's, been, he's been putting some, some cycles into this and trying to think through what is the right terminology for this? Um, so I, I certainly lean towards a signing device. Um, and then some will kind of retain the keys. Some of them won't retain the keys. But at the end of the day, you're using it as a way of being able to uh, interface with your private key in a more secure manner such that you can sign transactions that you coordinate through an internet connected device. Gotcha. So to circle back on just the software that that runs all this right before we get into different versions of signing devices. Um, I never thought before um, a conversation with you probably about last week about the idea of, OK, let's just use code card example, not to single them out. So the, the way that the device interacts and generates private keys and does addresses, that's pretty open source. But I'm not sure if that secure element is an open source um, if it's not, please correct me there. Um, but you're kind of now trusting that that company, I don't want to put it on, on, on cold card, but that company that makes that device, let's go there, um, has the best intentions with that secure element. Is that safe to say? Um, I, I don't know. I think that um, the secure element uh, isn't necessarily the biggest attack vector. I mean, okay. you know, if, if we look back on the history of hardware devices, um, I think there's relatively few instances where private keys are lifted off of uh, a hardware device in a way where, you know, theft of the device, they go and they try to tamper with it and they figure it out. I think there was um, previously 
there was a uh, an older version of Trezor software or Trezor firmware where um, you could actually lift the private key out of the device using a certain approach, mm. which they have since patched. Um, but I know that there was a video recently that showed um, a, a white hat hacker helping uh, someone who owned an old Trezor get access to his old private keys. Mm. Um, Interesting. And, uh, but, you know, I, I think that when you have a, just because it's rare doesn't mean that there isn't the potential for uh, an attack vector being there in the future. Um, and so uh, despite the fact that it's relatively secure to, um, you know, walk around with a device that has a secure element on it, that it's unlikely that if somebody were to take that, they would be able to lift your private key. Um, that could potentially change in the future. Uh, and as a result, you need to protect that device as though it were the private key. Um, and uh, where that starts to become problematic is um, some people might want to not use one device for all of their Bitcoin because they might have, you know, their uh, hot wallet that they want to interface with on a regular basis. They might have some more easily accessible funds, say that they're, you know, their one to two year storage of Bitcoin. And then they also have their generational wealth that they're trying to uh, stash away for a longer period of time. In theory, in each of those environments, if you have a device that has a secure element on it, you have effectively one device to hold um, one quorum or one private key. You can, of course, do multiple private keys on a single device. Um, but that then means that that single device, were it to be, were it to fall into the wrong hands, could be a much larger attack vector versus being able to distribute it between multiple devices. Um, so, and for some people that can just get to be much more expensive. Um, and in particular, yeah. if you start to think about multi-sig and yeah. you're trying to geographically, geographically distribute, um, you're looking at then having multiple devices in multiple locations. Um, you probably need to be mindful about keeping up with firmware updates. Uh, sometimes there can be issues with uh, waiting too long and trying to leap over multiple firmware changes. Um, so it, there's, there's challenges that evolve there. I think that um, uh, devices that have secure elements can ultimately be a great tool for, um, for many instances. But one of the things that's so incredible about Bitcoin is that it, it allows for a lot of interoperability and a lot of different flavors, a lot of different approaches. Um, there is no one size fits all. For some people, multi-sig makes a lot of sense. For other people, it doesn't make any sense and they have no desire to use it. Um, and I think that uh, you know the, the best possible Bitcoin is where it is able to meet the needs of everyone in terms of uh, a primary monetary tool. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, how, how does uh, now we talk about secure element and the hardware wall and having a device and that being an attack vector. So back to you were saying stateless devices. How, do, how does that come? What, what, what flavor does that bring to the table? And how does that help alleviate maybe some of the attack vectors that the uh, let's just say hardware wallet devices with the security element bring? Yeah, well, the, the biggest one is that um, 
you're not necessarily having to secure the device uh, as though it holds your private keys because it doesn't. Um, You you still leave open the possibility that if somebody were to get their hands on it, they could tamper with it. They could uh, maliciously uh, implant a chip on the device um, that can man in the middle as you're importing your private keys. Um, and then they can jump back in at a later date. There's, there's still the potential for something to go wrong there, but it's, it, it requires a much more sophisticated attack. Um, and, uh, I I think that there's, there's always going to be trade-offs. Um, but one of the things that I like about uh, using a, a stateless device is that I can jump back and forth between a lot of different setups that I have for my Bitcoin. And I can use one device to do all of these different things. So as an example, I have um, a multi-sig quorum where I hold uh, you know, longer term storage stuff. Yeah. Um, and I can easily just keep my XPUB on my computer uh, it may be a, a loss of privacy if that were to get in the wrong hands, but it's not a loss of security. Um, but, uh, you know, I also will then use multi-sig for uh, shorter term storage. Um, and sometimes I want to be able to spend out of there. So if I have a, a multi-sig device that I can easily interface with and quickly pull that up, that's great. Um, but maybe I want to you know, send from a different device. Uh, I think about like, you know, having personal accounts and business accounts. Uh, if you're thinking about it from a traditional finance standpoint, um, you're going to start to want to segment those environments as you move forward in your, um, in your financial dealings. Um, and so being able to interface with multiple different accounts on a regular basis without necessarily having to have an individual device for each of those environments uh, is really is really valuable. If you think about, um, you know, I have a business account and a personal account, um, and with each of those comes a checkbook, right? Um, but I don't need to have a different pen for each of those checkbooks. I need just one pen, and I can sign a check out of each of them. Mm-hmm. I think of the the signing device that's stateless in the same way, where I can use that same device to sign for multiple different checkbooks. Now, how does a um, a stateless device uh, a, become aware of you? If that makes any sense, how does how does that stateless because de- you said it just gets amnesia as soon as you unplug it? So, how does it know that it's not Jose and that it's Jevy again? Yeah. So when you first boot it up, um, it is ready to either help you create a new key, um, or you can uh, import an existing key either by entering them manually. Um, or as is the case with uh, seed signer, you can uh, import a QR code where you turn on the camera and you point it at a QR that you have encoded the private key into. Um, and with a single click, you've got the entire seed phrase loaded in and ready to sign a partially signed Bitcoin transaction. Oh, wow. Uh, how... Um... Because I've never used a QR code for any type of, well, to send basic mobile interactions. But when it comes to private keys, I've never had to use a QR code. Um, how long has that been actually been popular to do in Bitcoin? And excuse me if that's a dumb question. No, it, yeah. popular, I don't think at all. Um, yeah, good it's, point. <laughs> it's very new. Um, uh, best as I know, you know, Seed Signer was um, an idea that was born out of 
some of the cool stuff that uh, Spectre DIY was doing um, and having kind of a stateless device. Um, and I think it was actually um, uh, based on a conversation that the guy who started Seed Signer had with Michael Flaxman, um, who was saying, you know, it'd be really cool to build a similar setup to a Spectre DIY, but using a Raspberry Pi. Uh, yeah. something that would be more freely available um, and really cheap to set up. Um, so he started playing around with that. Um, and one of the nice things about Raspberry Pis is that there's a lot of tinker toys that you can just kind of plug and play into it. And one of them was a, a camera. And so he started thinking through, would there be a way to be able to encode the private key into a QR code such that when I needed to load one up, I didn't have to move around the joystick and press a button. You know, if you think about entering your email address on a PlayStation. Uh, it took forever, right? <laughs> For it's sure. the same thing. Um, and um, so that started to evolve and it was really mostly based on uh, paper-based QR codes. And then I've actually got one here. Um, I don't know if this is going to focus well enough, but um, yeah. so this is a, a metal seed plate um, courtesy of, I think it's Seedmint21 on Twitter. Yeah. Um, but what's cool about it is that you can then stamp in the same way that you do with a center punch on a, uh, any other metal plate, but you can stamp the QR code into metal such that it is then fire and waterproof. Um, and then when you go to pull it out, you can simply with one click of a button on the seat signer, you can point it at it and it will say, you know, your private key successfully loaded. Let us know what you'd like to do next. Yeah, and for the listeners, uh, Jebby just held up a C plate. So check us out on Bitcoin TV. Check us out on YouTube, and you get soaked that plug. up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> easy plug. Uh, but okay, so uh, when we're doing private keys, the old, let me say the old-fashioned way, which is what our twelve or twenty-four words or whatever, we know that they have to specifically be those words and in that order. Correct. Um, does a QR code respect that same boundary where like it can't accidentally give you, um, I guess, a different word? Yeah. That yep. Absolutely. Uh, Put simply, QR codes are just um, a, a way of encoding a binary information. Um, and then on the other end, it can decode it and it can it spits out a, a string. Um, and so whatever it is that you put into it is what you're going to get out. There isn't going to be any type of like mingling of words or somehow mixing them up. Um, but um, it's a it's a very easy, quick way to be able to establish um, and to deliver information from one device to another. Um, the thing that I also find really uh, interesting about it, th there's, been, there's been a lot of discussion about how useful an air-gapped device is. Um, yeah. I know that this was one of the contentions from the Shift Crypto guys that uh, build the Bitbox O2, um, that uh, an air-gapped device doesn't necessarily help in terms of your security posture. Um, but uh, the, the way that I have thought about it is that um, when you're when you're plugged in via USB or let's say even uh, newer usage of um, NFC, um, that you're you're entering into a communication protocol that it can immediately be two way uh, and can send and receive without you having the opportunity to really know what's going on under the surface. Uh, whereas with QR codes they're inherently one direction, right? Yeah. I, can, I can point my uh, device at the screen and send a QR to my computer, um, but the computer can't 
magically decide to jump back in and take more information than what I had desired, what I had decided to send to the computer. Yeah. Um, and so in theory, there is a, a way for an individual to be able to audit that information. I could, um, and what I've started building out is an old device that um, I leave in airplane mode and I just use to scan QR codes and then I can just quickly audit what information is actually being sent. Um, and um, another e a more easy way of being able to audit the information is that you could have more than one device that allows for Q that accepts QR based partially signed Bitcoin transactions. Yep. And you could scan in the same PSBT on two separate devices. And if the information matches up, you know that you're good to go, that it's sending you the information that it's supposed to. Um, the, the reason, and just kind of rehash some of the, the non-custodial stuff, the reason why it's important to verify the information is that um, one of the easiest ways, if a, a, an attacker were to be able to compromise, let's say they compromise the software that runs on your computer that you're using to uh, coordinate your Bitcoin wallets and to stage transactions, they could um, implant their own address in place of your own change address. So let's say you've got a UTXO that's half a Bitcoin and you're sending 100,000 Satoshis. What change address you use in that scenario is pretty important, mm -hmm. right? You got a lot of money that's coming back to you. Um, and if that were to suddenly get spliced off to a change address that doesn't belong to you, if you aren't validating that as you're going through and signing the transaction, as soon as it's out there, um, I mean, you could do a, a child pays for parent um, if you notice it and try to, you know, react quickly. But yeah. oftentimes if the mempool is pretty clear, um, which seems to be the case more often than not over the last couple of years. Um, you could be out of luck. Yeah. And do you even know how to do that type of transaction and broadcast it? Most people that I've talked to not even aware of what it is. So right. yeah, that's it. That's fascinating there. So, okay. So you can verify these QR codes. You should be doing that even with your 24 words or, or your private keys before you have, ever make any huge deposits, of course. So this QR code is no different. Before you do yeah. anything major, you should be testing this, like you said, on a few devices and making sure that this is audited. Yeah, and and some of the some of the hardware devices um, of the past have been more inclined to um, to improve the user experience of interacting with the Bitcoin network by obfuscating the the details, okay. um, and they wouldn't necessarily go through and show you here's the change address and this is how much is going back to there, and here's the receive addresses and this is where it's getting pulled from. Um, and all that information is, is worthwhile and important to audit as you go through. Um, and in large part, because um, in many instances, you might be sending a small amount, but that change amount might be quite substantial. And you don't want to be caught off guard and suddenly not be validating that each time. And you're sending off $5, but all of a sudden you're out $4,000, right? right. Um, uh, it would be the same that that same scenario if you were to go to a, a a cash machine and you were to swipe to pull out money 
and you say, well, I want to pull out $100 and you didn't verify things. And all of a sudden it said, cool, we're going to eat another $4,000 out of your bank account. That would be problematic. Yeah. So um, I, I think that uh, you're starting to see more of the devices um, being more insistent on showing you all of that information. Um, the, but the more that you show information, the more complexity you add. And so it's really important how you present that information and making sure that it's understandable. Why am I seeing this stuff and what do I need to do as I'm moving forward? Yeah, that's that's a very uh, fascinating, not fascinating, that's a great point is what that is because um, the amount of people that I've spoken to that never realize you know, how Bitcoin actually handles the transactions and being able to spend out those those UTXOs and then delivering that change back to you. Um, because like you said, most, well, previous iterations of, of devices and software hide that stuff. They don't even tell you that stuff, um, which is another really good point about what it sounds like from the seed sign or any stateless devices, because by nature, you actually have to interact with it more. You actually learn these principles and these concepts more. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I definitely, uh, in the period of time where I've been playing around with Seed Signer and getting to know it better, yeah, I, I would definitely say that my understanding of how to interact with the protocol has become much stronger. Um, just by virtue of the way in which it's, it's set up. Um, and, you know, that could also just be uh, recency bias. Um, it's been a long time since I set up my ledger. Um, way back in 2017, I set up another one more recently that I got as a test device, but realistically uh, that, that whole experience was entirely different. Um, and I, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the next, the next era of Bitcoin development is going to be on the, the user experience side of really starting to leverage some of this technological advancements, um, and putting, uh, more intuitive tools into the hands of users. And you're starting to see that with um, a lot of the development that's happening across the space, um, but it takes time and doing that requires getting more designers into the space, uh, more product people, uh, more UX people, um, and starting to solve these problems. Uh, you, engineers are phenomenal, um, but oftentimes they can only take you so far uh, and so getting an opportunity to be able to build out that, um, that roster, that, that depth of individuals that are keen on Bitcoin, understand the value proposition and want to work in the space. Um, you're starting to see that grow more and more. Um, but uh, I think there's still a long way to go in terms of capturing some really incredible talent that's out there and yet to really kind of emerge in terms of the younger generation that's still coming in that's going to be native to this experience. Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait for that. We're starting to see it for sure. Uh, yeah. When I first started learning or uh, looking into Seed Signer, um, it went from that stateless being a pain in the ass point. Like, hey, well, why why would I want to do this every single time? To like, as we're discussing here, more of a a repetition thing and more of a learning experience, which is only going to make your you know security model and your knowledge of Bitcoin and how it interacts just that much more solidified. Um, that's that's Probably some, that should be the sales pitch, in my opinion, for the device <laughs> is learn Bitcoin better and get to secure at the same time. But yeah, um, I, I want to talk about it, it doesn't have to be CSIN specific, but I think they're making the biggest impact. Can we talk about like the global, how it is in different parts of the world? Because we have yeah. that America bias 
right? Where like everything here is at a click of a button and speed and we got money to blow and all this stuff. And that's not the case in other parts of the world. So how does C-Signer, I guess, if we want to be specific here, how does that solve that? Yeah, I think um, to set this up a bit more broadly speaking, the same disconnect is true in Bitcoin at large, right? People in uh, privileged uh, parts of the world where they're, um, they're living in a, a free democracy that has a reasonably stable central bank and is trying to mitigate inflation below double digits, let's say, to be generous. Um, <laughs> I love the politically correctness. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, the, the, the value proposition at large of what Bitcoin does and what it's providing for people um, doesn't necessarily resonate by default. Um, but for people in countries, I think, what, roughly 13% of the population falls into that category of people that live in uh under regimes that are reasonably stable and have reasonably stable monetary policies. I'm not going to say more than that. Sure. Um, but that means 87% of the global population lives in uh, a scenario that is entirely different. Um, and I, this isn't necessarily just limited to what people would consider developing countries. I mean, you've got um, places going through quasi hyperinflation like Turkey and Argentina. Um, and uh, you had a thriving middle class in uh, Lebanon, and that's been wiped out by horrible monetary policies. Um, and so these people are experiencing the downside risk of a fiat currency that is poorly managed. Um, and they see the value proposition of Bitcoin. Um, so I think that there's, there's always, there's going to be a disconnect. Uh, it doesn't click for people until it has to click sometimes. Um, and unfortunately for some, it's too late at that point. Uh, likewise, when it comes to securing your Bitcoin for a lot of people, um, it's very difficult to be able to acquire Bitcoin hardware devices, um, and to get them shipped into these countries. They've got very strict customs. Um, that will just seize things that they deem to be inappropriate. They might have a ban on Bitcoin. Um, they might have a ban on electronics. Um, they might have, who knows? Like there's, there's a lot of different uh, angles that can be uh, at play there. But um, what the seed signer model uh, affords is in some countries where maybe there is a, an outright ban on Bitcoin devices, but maybe there isn't a ban on all electronic devices, you are able to send the individual parts into the country separately and then allow for people to assemble them once they've arrived. Mm. Um, and it unlocks the ability for these people to be able to secure their keys and interact with the Bitcoin protocol in a much safer manner. Uh, by and large, most people's uh, operational security when it comes to their mobile devices is not great. Mm -hmm. um, and so if people are storing their entire savings in a mobile wallet, that could become problematic. And so giving them a tool that allows for them to uh, interface with their private keys on a separate device um, 
regardless of if it's stored on the device or not, the fact that they can simply have a very uh, affordable and approachable device to be able to do what they need to with their private keys uh, without having it um, include the private keys touching their their smartphone or their laptop is a, a really important opportunity that needs to be seized. And one of the things that um, that I know Seed Signer is focusing on right now is um, he is working on a partnership with um, I think Fadi Elsamin. Uh, I, I'm probably butchering his last name, and I apologize. Um, but he is a um, a Palestinian human rights activist and a venture capitalist um, who is really keen on trying to deploy seed signer as a an offline bitcoin device into palestine such that palestinians are able to secure their bitcoin in a more self-sovereign way and to be less dependent upon whatever smartphone device or however else they might be interfacing with the protocol um, that they can do so uh, in a more secure manner than they currently are yeah, only in this space, man. I just love hearing stuff like that, where not only is there like real world problems that were ignored forever and have gotten to this climactic point of people being in this situation, but that Bitcoiners seem to be the only ones that want to solve these problems and then execute on it. It's just fascinating to me, always. Yeah, and if you consider there's, what, billions of people around the world that are unbanked? Yeah. Um, and one of the analogies that I, I often think about is the way in which the smartphone or the cellular phone in general leapfrogged landlines on the entire continent of Africa. They didn't have any communication devices whatsoever for decades relative to uh, more you know, westernized countries like the US and Europe. Um, uh, and what you're seeing now is they just simply said, well, okay, we don't need to build out that infrastructure because we have this new infrastructure that puts all of these tools in our hands even easier. Uh, and likewise, when you've had uh, you know, centuries of, um, of undermining their access to um, financing, to build capital, to build wealth for themselves, to be able to leverage financial tools in the same way that other people around the world have, to suddenly unlock that access um, and to be able to um, put some of your money into an appreciating asset um, where you can see the same returns as a major CEO of a United States you know, publicly traded company. Um, and I think that democratization is something that people outside of the Bitcoin space should be applauding. Uh, whether or not they necessarily agree with um, with how Bitcoin trades and um, is still considering it to be a speculative asset, that's fine. Um, but recognizing that it, for the first time, represents a tool that um, offers the potential for a financial tool uh, that has that potential and that has that configurability and that power to reach into the entire global population. Um, is something that we haven't come close to before. Uh, and I think that um, the more that people understand those opportunities that are being built for um, people around the world, the, the more likely it is that they're going to then 
take the time to actually think about what are the other benefits that this provides. You know, even more kind of um, uh, relevant to uh, current events, there's, there's stories of um, people in Ukraine that were fleeing the country at the outset of the war um, who arrived in Poland with a 12-word seed phrase memorized in their head or with a hardware device they managed to get across. Um, and they were able to pop that back open or even just, you know, like a Coinbase account. I don't, I'm sure that Ukraine had ac- Ukrainians had plenty of access to uh, custodial exchanges. Um, but if you put yourself into the headspace of um, people fleeing uh, Germany during World War II, um, they were trying to flee with gold. And that was getting confiscated left and right as they left the country. They had no way of being able to do anything about it. Um, and the fact that you can walk across a border um, with nothing but the clothes on your back and 12 words in your head, um, that, is an, uh, that is an incredibly powerful opportunity. Um, and nobody wants to be in that position. But when push comes to shove, if you suddenly have to leave your home, um, do you have the ability to leave with your entire wealth? The answer for most people is no. Right. The regimes and the governments are in disbelief. <laughs> they have no way of slowing it down. Uh, super fascinating. Um, Jevy, I know we're approaching time here. Is there anything else that we missed here that you wanted to cover that we should have covered? Um, I, think we I mean, plenty. Lot. We might have to, yeah, we might have yeah. to jump in another time. Um, I know that... Uh, um, I think one of the interesting things that's happening, and this kind of touches back on um, my interest in not being very technical, but interested in the technical aspects of Bitcoin, is some of the conversation that's happening around CTV um, and um, and BIP one nineteen. Um, and uh, as I've been trying to dig into it a little bit more. Um, I think that the the best way that I can summarize it is that there's there's two conflicting aspects that are uh, going on right now. There is the discussion around the activation method, and then there's a discussion around the the BIP itself. Um, with the BIP itself, um, there is some very interesting uh, technological opportunities, some tools that can be um, that can be very quickly utilized by uh, a lot of individuals. Um, it doesn't necessarily have broad application, um, but there's also been other uh, improvements that haven't necessarily had broad application that have still been adopted. Um, and best as I can understand, it doesn't have a negative impact on individual users that choose not to use it. Um, it is an opcode. Opcodes are already part of the protocol. Um, there isn't necessarily additional bloat that you're going to be experiencing on an individual node. You can handle your UTXOs in the way that you see fit. Um, uh, and I think uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the concern comes out of the notion that covenants allow for you to predetermine how a UTXO can, can be spent. Um, and being worried about the possibility of harming fungibility as a result. But um, the, the only way that you can implement a covenant is if you already control 
those UTXOs and you decide to create a restriction on that and the address that you are eventually going to send it to is still an address that you control. Um, so one example of uh, unnecessary FUD that I um, have heard is that suddenly Coinbase and Gemini are going to be told by the government that they have to, um, they can only send Bitcoin to an unhosted non-custodial wallet um, if they have a covenant attached to it that requires that it be sent back to a regulated exchange and that it can't be sent anywhere else. But that is technically not possible with the way in which the, the improvement proposal is drafted. Um, and so I, I think that there's a lot of examples like that where if you, if you peel back the layers and you try to actually dig in and you try to, um, you know, it, it's important to be adversarial in your thinking, um, but not to the point where you just simply throw out wild concerns that aren't based in reality. Right. Um, and um, so broadly speaking, I'm still learning. I'm still trying to understand it better. But broadly speaking, I think that um, there's, there's uh, enough viable use case that BIP-119 sh should be something that we at least continue to talk about and consider. Um, I think the, the other part of this that really has been more challenging is the activation method. Yeah. Um, and that it, um, it, for a lot of people, seemed really sudden. Um, there wasn't a lot of talk about CTV, and all of a sudden there was a, um, a request for a speedy activation, and um, people saw that as an attack on Bitcoin. Um, and I, I think that there's genuine concern uh, to be had um, but as I understand it, there was this, there was this lack of any conversation that was happening and the proponents of CTV feeling like it was really solidified and in a good place in terms of where the proposal needed to be. And they couldn't get people's attention. They needed to somehow get people's attention. I think that the jury is still out as to whether or not the approach will end up causing more harm than good in terms of their desired outcome, but it certainly got it on the radar. I mean, people are talking about it now. Um, so I, I'm certainly, um, I am of the opinion that Bitcoin, the uh, protocol as it is today, is not perfect. And we are going to need to continue to make changes and improvements over time. Um, and that we we should be adversarial in our thinking. Um, we should push back and be critical, but we also need to be open to people presenting ideas um, and not necessarily seeing everything as an attack and really you know, trying to dig in more, do due diligence. Um, but there's also, there's going to be times when there are BIPs that are proposed that don't necessarily provide functionality or features that are valuable to you, but they might be to somebody else. And you have no way of knowing if there may in the future be a proposal that you find really valuable, but somebody else doesn't. And they then put themselves in the same mindset as you um, at that time and make it more challenging for that to be adopted. Um, so I think overall, we part of the Part of the value proposition of Bitcoin is that it is slow 
and it um, requires a lot of effort in order to be able to make changes. Um, there's there's a lot of value that's being protected um, by the protocol at this time, and we don't you know we don't want to screw it up. Um, if if we make a mistake, it has a potential to be extremely damaging. So we need to be mindful at all times, but um, we we shouldn't put a blocker on and just sort of say it's all perfect. We don't need to make any changes. Let's forget about it. Uh, that's that's not going to help us either. Yeah, that's that's the best versioning and framing of this whole thing that I've heard from anybody. I think if Jeremy Rubin is listening, you owe Jevy some sets. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> It's uh, yeah, I've I've seen in live in person, uh, Jeremy talk about it, and um, yeah, I've tried to been following along. I I thought the activation method was just rushed, but from what you're telling me, it kind of seems like it. He's been doing this for a little while, just kind of went unnoticed, and now the conversation's starting to spark up. I think it's uh, years at this point. Yeah. Well, that changes my whole you know rush process because I thought it was just being rushed, and I don't think anything in Bitcoin should be rushed, right? I think it, things should take their time. But if that's not the case, then I. I you know, just off of listening to what you said, I, I tend to agree with you. I think there's this one of those things where if you don't want to run it, then don't run it and don't use it. But if it helps other people in other use cases, then why the hell not? That yeah, and I, j- just to be clear, I don't consider myself to be an authority. I'm you know, sure digging into this more recently, um, and this is just one person's opinion, uh, yeah. albeit somebody who hasn't audited the code themselves. Um, and so, I have to just try and do my own due diligence and. Um, I'm fortunate that I'm able to talk with people who I know have more of a technical understanding of it. And I can ask kind of layman's questions about like, okay, well, how would this work if, um, you know, trying to dispel some of that FUD, the, the more I can understand the actual use cases and how it unfold, the better off I am. Um, but at the end of the day, don't trust, verify, right? Yeah. It's, it applies broadly in every sense of the word. Indeed. And uh, we appreciate you here and talking a bit, aggregating all that information for us and providing us that wisdom in a nice encapsulated fashion, man. Uh, Jevy, please let the listeners know if, if you want them to follow you, wherever you want them to go. Um, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Jevidon, J-E-V-I-D-O-N. Um, I tweet um, a lot about Bitcoin and health and um, how to make great food at home. Um, that's my other passion. Maybe we'll get into that on another Can't believe uh, I missed podcast that. episode at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, um, that's where you can find me. Um, I try not to be too uh, aggressive in my posting, but sometimes uh, I see some egregious stuff happening online and um, it's hard not to make a comment. So Yeah, I can't believe we went through a whole conversation. We didn't talk about seed oils, man. Shit. Yeah, let's leave that for another day. Yeah, missed opportunity. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you, Jevy. Um, I do want to let the listeners know that going forward, thanks to the innovations of Value for Value podcasting and being able to embed things inside the uh, RSS feed, uh, you are able to do splits. I'm planning on offering, starting with Jevy, a 5% split for any guest that comes on to the show. And I don't want to speak for you, but you've donated yours too. Uh, Open sets. Open Um, sets. Yeah. I, I think value for value is incredible. Um, and uh, I think that there is a, a huge opportunity for uh, for content creators to be able to pay get paid directly for the, the work that they do. Um, podcasting is an incredible medium, but has lacked um, a, a monetization pathway. Um, and Lightning has just massively unlocked that door. Um, so big shout out to Adam Curry. 
um, mm-hmm. and the work that he's been doing on podcasting 2.0. Um, but uh, I also want to make sure that I support free and open source software developers, um, and I let OpenSats is doing great work. So um, yes. let's, let's get the sats over to them. Definitely. So 5% is going to Jevy and every single Talking in Bits episode is also going to donate 5% sat. So that's a match to Jevy's donation. That's 10% for any of you guys that listen to the show. Where can you listen to the show and stream with some sats? Well, Fountain App is my favorite way to do it. You can also do it on Breeze as well. Um, that's the best way to get onboarded into checking out what Value for Value is all about. You open up a wallet really quick. You can load it up with some sats from Cash App or wherever you want, and then you can donate 10% of those sats uh, here over here. So check us out on Bitcoin TV. Check us out on Fountain and Breeze. That's our preferred ways. If you're still stuck in the legacy mode, we completely understand. You'll get there, but we're also on YouTube. We're also on Spotify, and we're on those other platforms. Uh, also, remember, on the Saturday rips, we like to do the Mind Your Block segment, where 50, 50% of that actually goes to open sats as well so you can see where we could accumulate all these sats and contribute to open source development so we appreciate you guys as always jevy i appreciate you for joining us absolutely thanks for having me awesome hopefully this ain't the last time yeah sounds good that wraps up episode 64 y'all i'll talk to y'all next week later